Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Awesome. Uh, why don't we get started by having you tell the audience a little bit about your background and how you got interested in machine learning? Uh, sure. So I started out studying mathematics, actually. Um, in my undergraduate degree, I did a double major in pure and applied mathematics. And once I graduated, I then did a year of research in pure mathematics, um, studying certain classes of polynomials, in fact. Um, oh, man. <laughs> I'm starting to break out in, in like sweat here. I think in grad school, real the real analysis class I took was like the hardest class. Right. Well, I was actually studying these polynomials over over finite fields, so it was more in the um, the abstract algebra space. But to your point exactly, um, after I did this, I I decided I wanted to do something with more of a concrete application in the real world. <laughs> and so I, I knew I wanted to do a PhD, um, and so I, I looked at some other options, and eventually I decided to pursue a PhD in biomechanical engineering. Oh wow. So I, I started that PhD, um, but after about a year, I decided that um, perhaps a career in uh, biomechanical engineering research uh, wasn't for me. Um, so I started to look for other opportunities at that point. So briefly, I went back to mathematics for a little while um, by teaching classes at, at uh, my university. Um, but I decided to apply for a job at Google, uh, mainly because I was ex excited by some of the really high impact world changing projects that I was hearing about coming out of Google uh, in particular, I remember being excited by Project Loon. Um, so for those who don't know, that was a project, uh, it's actually still going, that tries to use networks of flying balloons to bring the internet to users in rural and remote areas. Um, so so I, I applied to Google and I was hired as a software engineer, but unfortunately I didn't get to work on Project Loon <laughs> straight away. I was actually placed in the Google Display Ads team and I was working on ads for Google Maps and Gmail. Okay. And, and this is where I got my first taste of machine learning. Um, I was actually working on models to try and uh, show the most relevant ads to each user. And I, I learned a lot about machine learning in that, in that role. And, and then early on in, in my career at Google, um, I saw a presentation here at Google by some researchers in the Google Brain team where I currently work. And uh, they had created a neural network that would automatically generate image captions. Uh, and I thought this was really exciting. Th this model that they created could accept uh, raw pixels from photographs and output fully formed English sentences that would describe the photo. Um, and so this model was actually trained using only uh, images and captions as input. So quite amazingly, the model was not actually given any um, details about the English language except that the captions and it actually managed to learn uh, not only how to caption images but also how to write you know uh, sentences with good English grammar which I thought was pretty amazing as well just just mm. from reading captions um, and so uh, at that point I decided I wanted to work on the Google brain team um, and luckily nice. I got yeah so luckily I got the chance to transfer to the brain team after two years in ads and since then I've been um, working on um, machine learning research here in the brain team. And I've been lucky enough to work on many different areas of machine learning research since I joined the team. Awesome. And one of the areas that you did get to work on, uh, you got a little bit of publicity on this, uh, 
was uh, it grew out of really a side project or a hobby project. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, actually, this this project um, that I've been working on um, to discover planets with machine learning um, really grew out of you know a, a random sort of chance idea I had while I was reading a, a, an unrelated book. Um, there, there's a book uh, called Human Universe by Brian Cox, which uh, is mainly about exploring our evolution as a species, um, but it also digs into the question of uh, whether we are unique in the universe. And um, one of the, the uh, fundamental um, pieces to that question is um, whether there are other planets like Earth out there and how many mm-hmm. there are. Uh, and then one of the things he mentioned um, in this book was that um, it's actually quite difficult to detect these these um, planets in sort of um, around faraway stars. Um, and one of the difficulties is actually uh, digging through this this uh, huge amount of data that is collected by uh, modern satellites. And so when I read that, I, I instantly connected that back to my work at Google where we train models to dig through large data sets all the time. And so I wondered if perhaps we could uh, apply some of those same techniques to dig through these large astronomy data sets and look for exoplanets. Nice. And uh, this is interesting to me. I've, uh, I've interviewed several people who have come from physics, including at least one astronomer, uh, Josh Bloom, who's at GE Digital now. Um, who have, you know, started from this kind of deep domain knowledge and, you know, learned uh, machine learning uh, and applied it to what they're doing. But you're coming at it from almost the complete opposite approach. Like you have some machine learning tools and then you hear about this really interesting problem in astrophysics and you, you, you get involved and you actually do something really interesting with them. How did you get started? Well... You're right that I actually don't have very much um, background or knowledge in astronomy at all. In fact, I, I still don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so um, the, the first thing I did was I jumped on Google and started looking for um, what these uh, data sets actually looked like and who, who worked with them. And I was lucky enough to uh, stumble across the name of an astrophysicist who was at the time working at Harvard. His name is Andrew Vandenberg. And he seemed to be someone who had dealt with these um, these data sets um, in which we look for planets. And so I, I literally just sent him an email and, and said, um, hi, I work at Google uh, in machine learning. Would you be interested in collaborating uh, on a project together? And um, he actually was interested. And so this, this whole project has really been a partnership between Andrew and I, where I have um, taken care of the uh, machine learning side and the, the coding side, and he is taking care of the astronomy side. Tell me a little bit about the timeline of the project. How long did you spend, have you been working on this? So um, I believe I started working on this project uh, in late 2016. Um, so around um, September or October, I believe I, I first emailed Andrew. And mm-hmm. initially I was working on this, um, as you mentioned at the start, as a side project. I was really just devoting 10 or 20% of my time to this for a few months. But um, it was around um, March or April in 2017 so perhaps six months later that 
we had managed to train uh, a model that we thought we might be able to use to uh, search for new exoplanets. And when we ran this model on a, on a very small sample of stars, um, we actually uh, found that we were able to discover some new signals that, that probably were exoplanets. And that's when we started taking this project a lot more seriously. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then I started working on it um, probably more towards 100% of my time. Um, mm. And so then uh, for most of last year, for, for the rest of 2017, we really, um, you know, went back and, and, uh, and, and carefully trained our model again and used it to actually carefully search these stars. Uh, Andrew did the, did the um, validation of our, of our new planets that we discovered and then we wrote the paper and, and that was published in January of this year. We'll dig into kind of how things shifted when you started working on this full time, but I suspect that there are a lot of folks out there who, um, you know, know some machine learning, maybe have taken a, a deep learning course or, or work in it and would love to apply it on a project like this. And so I'm really curious if you can dig into like those first six months or even those first six weeks, like when you're spending just you know, 10, 20% of your time, kind of equivalent to what folks might have to work on a project like this in their, you know, nights and weekends. Like, how did you approach it? And what were some of the things you did? What did the data set look like? And, and uh, how did you, how did you set priorities for making progress with this? Sure. Um, so actually, when I started, I, I had this vague notion that we would use machine learning to search for planets, but I didn't even know what the data looked like. I thought that um, what we might be doing is taking, uh, training a model to input photographs from the sky um, and actually look um, for the actual planets in images mm. of the sky. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it turns out that's not in fact the, the way that most exoplanets are discovered. Um, okay. So the format of the data in this case um, it's actually not not images of the sky, but rather um, the we, we look at how the brightness of a star changes over time. And so if you're monitoring the brightness of a particular star in the sky, and if a planet happens to pass in front of that star um, relative to the telescope that's um, recording the brightness, mm -hmm. you'll actually see the brightness of that star dip down uh, while the planet is blocking some of the starlight. And then the... Uh, brightness will then increase again, um, you know, w once the planet is no longer blocking any of the light from the star. Um, so the, the data that we're looking at is actually uh, a time series of brightness. And what we're looking for is certain patterns in that brightness time series that would correspond to a planet passing in front of the star. Do you get it as a time series of brightness because it's been pre-processed from the state that you previously expected it to be, meaning there have, you know, some telescopes have captured images and within those images, individual stars are identified and uh, some brightness value is calculated and kind of logged off into some time series data set, or is there something else happening to produce that data? Do you have a sense for that? Yes. Uh, no, you're exactly right. So um, what happens is this data set uh, has actually been pre-processed by um, a team at NASA. 
So the data originally comes from the Kepler Space Telescope, which was in operation uh, for the main part of its mission for um, eight years. Okay. Beginning in 2009, I believe. Yeah, the main part of its mission was in operation for eight years beginning in 2009. Um, but the, the set, it was looking at the specific section of the sky that we've been searching uh, for the first four years. Um, so that there's this four-year data set from the, the Kepler telescope and uh, a team at NASA has already taken that data, has localized the stars in that data and converted that um, uh, data into these uh, time series and has actually uh, posted that uh, for free on the internet. You can actually download it. It's, okay. um, it takes up several terabytes and in fact is, takes several weeks to download um, <laughs> because the, you don't get great download speeds. Uh, from, even if you're on a there. Google land? Yeah, even if you're on a, on a Google <laughs> land, yeah. It's millions of files and, and we, we literally just um, uh, had this big wget script that would just, you know, download all these individual files. Okay. And it, it took about two weeks to download. Okay. Um, but that was, so, um, yeah, going back to your, your original question here, that was um, one of the um, ways in which we were very lucky in this project. Um, a lot of the data pre-processing was uh, already taken care of by, um, by NASA. And so uh, not only that, but we were also lucky in that we had uh, a large training set of labeled examples um, from astronomers at NASA and um, at, at other universities. So I mentioned that this um, telescope uh, was launched in 2009, so over eight years ago. And in that time, a lot of human astronomers have looked at certain patterns um, in this data set and have labeled them uh, essentially as being this, this is a signal that is a planet and this other signal is not a planet. So that was, that was one of the other ways in which we were lucky. We didn't have to start from scratch with no training set. We actually had the data and we had uh, a training set there that was already made for us. And, that, and those two reasons are one, uh, uh, probably key for us being able to make such rapid progress and within about uh, six months having all the, the pieces together and being able to find some new planet candidates. Um, so I know that there are many other problems in, for example, astronomy um, that do have large amounts of data available, but perhaps that data is not uh, in, a, in a form um, that is easily ingestible by a machine learning model. And also perhaps there is not uh, a training set of labeled examples that you can use to train a machine learning model. Um, so I think those, those considerations are very important. Um, if somebody is trying to, uh, you know, in their spare time, train a machine learning model to, um, you know, accomplish any task, the, the two things you want to ask yourself is, um, one, does this data exist in a format that, that I can, um, you know, obtain easily and, and process myself? And two, is there a training set that I can use uh, to train my model? And can you tell us a little bit about the model development process? How did you approach that? Sure. Um, so my process when I develop a model is to start simple and then try and build that up into something more complicated. Um, and so the, the simplest thing that I thought I could try with this model was uh, simply 
um, a linear logistic regression model, um, which is a very common and well understood uh, type of machine learning model that has been used for for decades successfully in a lot of tasks. And so I had um, I had this um, this data from NASA, um, these this uh, time series of brightness values, and so. Um, you know, the first uh, consideration there was how am I going to um, feed this data into my model? And we can perhaps get get uh, into that a little bit more. But, but once I had figured that out, um, I thought, well, let's just try the simplest model um, I, can, I can possibly think of. And, you know, I think as a general rule of thumb, um, you know, your simple model should at least get you part of the way there, perhaps even most of the way there. Um, and so we were actually able to train this simple model to actually have relatively good accuracy. Uh, the, the simple model that we ended up training first uh, actually ended up having an accuracy of about 92%. Uh, and then, you know, several months later when we, when we trained our, you know, big complicated neural network model, uh, that model ended up having about 96% accuracy. So um, I think the... Uh, the lesson here is that that you can you can certainly start simple and you'll probably get most of the way there um, before you you start trying these you know really complicated models. Now you talked a, a bit about the data set, but what did the labels look like? I'm envisioning. I mean, so you've got these you've got stars and you're mm-hmm. trying to identify whether the stars have planets. Is are the labels? Uh, you know, yes, planets, no planets, or are they, you know, numbers of planets? Because you, part of what you were able to do with this research is identify uh, new planets in known uh, solar systems, meaning stars that already had existing planets, right? Right, right. So I'm imagining the labels have to be more, somewhat more nuanced than binary. Right. Um, so... Yeah, so if we if we imagine that the uh, data for a single star is a very 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 long time series of brightness measurements, actually the individual inputs to the model um, are not that entire time series, but they're individual events on that time series that um, some other you know separate computer algorithm, a very basic algorithm that's not machine learning at all, has gone through and has identified. Um, certain events um, on that time series where the brightness decreases. Mm-hmm. So as you said, um, certain uh, stars can have many events where the brightness decreases. Um, you know, it may have many planets, uh, but it may also have uh, something called star spots, which is like a dark spot on the star. And because the star itself is rotating, um, those dark spots, when the, when the dark spot rotates into the into the view of the the telescope that's also going to cause the brightness of the star to decrease right so so there are there are many different types of events some of which are astronomical some of which are actually instrumental uh, that can cause the brightness of the star measured by the telescope to decrease Uh and so when we actually when i'm actually talking about labels i'm talking about a label for a particular event on the, on the star where we've actually observed the brightness decreasing. So that label is 
just brightness decreasing or is it um, brightness decrease because of a planet? Yeah, so the label is is the the second option you provided. So one of the possible labels is brightness decreased because of a planet. Uh, and the other possible labels are brightness decreased because of some astronomical event, for example, a star spot. And then the um, the third possible label uh, in, in the data set is that the brightness decreased for some sort of uh, instrumental reason. Um, perhaps there was some noise, um, instrumental noise or, um, you know, something like that. And so... Uh, when we train the model, so those were really the only three labels in the data set that that we were that we were given that we started with. Okay. But when I train when I train the model, um, I actually just I, I binarized this. So one label was this event is a planet, and the other event is this event is not a planet. Can you give me a sense for you know how long did you spend kind of start you know familiarizing yourself with the data set and maybe learning a little bit about the background of the problem and the domain knowledge you might need to uh, to solve it versus modeling versus applying your model to um, to unlabeled data, that kind of thing? Sure. Yeah. So um, I mentioned, I think that it was about six months um, before we'd actually trained a model and started discovering planets. And certainly I would say that at least four to five of those months were uh, me trying to understand this data to actually, um, you know, uh, not only download it, but being able to open this file format, right? Like <laughs> what, what, you know, what, what format does a, um, does a, you know, brightness plot of a star come in from NASA, it, it, it ends up coming in a file with a .fits extension. And so you need to be able to um, figure out how to open that extension and how to extract the data that you want and then um, actually how to pre-process that. Luckily, I had uh, Andrew, um, you know, on the mm -hmm. other end of the, the phone who would um, who already had a lot of experience with this which which really helped um, which really helped me, but nonetheless, I spent a lot of time uh, just learning how to actually um, you know use this data and what it meant. I spent a lot of that time reading papers as well. Um, there there have been other um, people who have applied machine learning to similar problems, and so I need to understand what they did. Um, you know, I don't want to to reinvent the wheel. Um, you know, I, I can try and learn from. Um, their mistakes and also the things they did that worked well. Um, and so, you know, once it actually got to coding the model and training the model and testing the model, that was really only probably one of one out of the first six months. Wow. Wow. What were some of those things that you learned from other attempts that you applied to your own modeling process? Sure. Yeah. So, there are there are several there are several steps um, that it that are fairly standard in in astronomy for processing these uh, brightness time series. The brightness time series are typically called light curves. So I'll, I'll just start using the word light curves for them now. So the first thing you actually need to do with a light curve is actually you need to flatten away uh, what's called the stellar variability. 
So it turns out that the variability or, or the, the light from a star is not actually going to be constant over time. Um, for various reasons, the, the brightness that you'll measure from a star is actually changing over time quite naturally. Meaning independent of an event, the star is getting further or whatever. Ex well, yeah, there's, so there's several reasons. The star, the star, the star is itself rotating. Um, so different, perhaps different areas of the star's surface are brighter than other areas. And so when the star rotates, the, the brightness that you see actually, um, actually changes. Um, uh, also, there, there's instrumental effects here um, that can also cause the sort of the baseline brightness to kind of drift over time. That's actually, um, you know, characteristic of the 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 instrument on the Kepler telescope. So you need to fit away this kind of variability that you see in the brightness of the star. Um, but but you want to do this in such a way that you don't actually you know uh, fit away the events that we're trying to to classify, which is when the brightness decreases kind of more sharply um, okay. and and, okay. and suddenly. Um, so so there are various techniques to do that, and so. Um, we, we were able to use uh, some of those techniques uh, in order to sort of uh, normalize the brightness of the, the star so that uh, outside these events we're looking at, the, the brightness was totally flat. So that was, that was certainly one of, the, one of the key starting points for us. Were these other techniques machine learning types of techniques or more you know, simpler data massaging types of approaches? Right. So the... The current, um, I guess, state-of-the-art system um, for classifying these, these events as being planets or, or not planets um, is actually, uh, it's called the RoboVetter. It was developed at NASA. And this is actually um, mainly uh, not, not a machine learning technique. There, there is one component inside this RoboVetter that, that uses a, a machine learning technique. But for the most part, it's actually a decision tree that has been sort of crafted and honed by humans. So this, um, this piece of software, uh, which was developed over, over a few years, uh, actually runs uh, hundreds of different heuristics on these events. And it, it has all these different thresholds and, and branches um, to determine whether this event should be uh, classified as a planet or not. So that's, that's the main technique um, that is actually used at the moment. There have been some other techniques that did the, the problem, or that took on the problem that, that we were focused on. One of those used uh, a random forest model and another one used uh, a sort of unsupervised clustering type model. And so we... Um, we were sort of one of the first to decide to use neural networks for this problem. Coming back to the, you know, thinking about your, your labeled data, which you, you mentioned you kind of binarized, you, you turn into, you know, is this event on the light curve due to uh, a, an orbiting planet or not? Um, how do you get from that to uh, being able to detect new orbiting planets on a known star um, that has, you know, on a star that already has known orbiting planets? Or was that a, you know, a, a, a consequence not necessarily related or produced by your algorithm? 
Sure. So I think I mentioned that um, these events that we detect on the light curve where the brightness dips are actually produced by um, you know, a completely separate algorithm. Um, and traditionally, uh, what would happen was that uh, we, uh, well, the astronomers would, would run some algorithm and would, um, would take uh, a, a whole large set of these events that were detected and manually examine each of them by eye and decide which of those were caused by planets and which of those were caused by, you know, various other events. And so because this process was, um, you know, the, the, the time required was really dominated by the fact that the humans had to go in and examine these things, um, it, it wasn't possible to examine every possible signal. Uh, so, so what they did was they set some threshold and said, okay, we're only going to examine events detected above some certain signal-to-noise threshold. Mm. Okay. And so now even, even with the signal-to-noise threshold, um, they still actually had to go through and examine over 30,000 events oh, wow. um, from the, from the four-year Kepler mission. So it wasn't like they chose a, a really, really aggressive threshold, um, but the, the possibility still remained that if the threshold was lowered just a little bit, and some some of these you know lower signal to noise events uh, you know could be considered that there may be some planets that hmm. were missed uh, by the previous searches, uh, and so that's what we looked at in this project. We took our trained model, and we used that that model to go and look at these events that had not previously been classified because the signal to noise was was below the the. Uh, traditional thresholds. And so that was how we were able to discover new planets around stars that had already been searched, you know, multiple times before. Did you run the algorithm against kind of all of the remaining data and thus you've had, you have, you know, we collectively now have a fairly high confidence that we found all of the possible exoplanets or um, was, was, you know, because of the data volume or whatever, um, you know, you also had some threshold or some slice of the data and there's still an opportunity to apply it more broadly. So out of the 200,000 stars in this data set, we've actually only run our model over 670. Wow. Okay. Um, so we chose we chose those six hundred and seventy because um, those stars have already had already had multiple orbiting planets discovered around them, and it's a lot more likely that you're going to discover more planets around uh, stars that we've already discovered planets around than if you just chose some random star. So we, we really chose these 670 because we just wanted to, you know, have the quickest test of our model possible. And so we, we, we restricted ourselves to this, this tiny sample and actually, you know, discovered two new planets. And we were very excited about this. And, you know, we decided to, to stop and write our paper. But certainly what we're currently doing right now is working on ramping up uh, our current pipeline to actually search all 200,000 mm. stars. And, you know, who knows what we're going to find mm -hmm. when we do that. Mm -hmm. 
Talk a little bit about the the process and approach you took once you switched gears from the more traditional approach to applying a neural net. I think you said you were using uh, logistic regression originally. Right, that's right, yes. So the logistic regression model um, really just took in, um, say, one of these light curves, one of these time series, um, and simply used those as uh, features. Each independent point on the light curve was an independent feature to the model. Um, And so the model could learn, for example, if uh, this particular uh, pixel, we fed our model, we fed the, the events into the model such that you know we, we'd normalized where we thought the light the light was decreasing. We we um, we actually sort of like centered the event in the in the input. So the model knew where the event was supposed to be. And so the model could learn things like if this particular pixel has a brightness below average, um, you know, that might contribute to a classification of you know it being a planet or it not being a planet. Uh, but essentially, in the logistic regression model, each of those individual pixels was going to be considered independently of all the other pixels. Uh, essentially, they were all going to be used um, as independent indicators of whether this time series, this light curve, was a planet. And so, or not. your your input vector to the uh, logistic regression model was a vector of kind of the uh, four years worth of these brightness values for a particular pixel at whatever time increment the they were captured at? So we didn't actually feed in all four years of data in, in one very, very long vector. What we did was we actually fed in just one of the events, basically, that we were looking at. So we, we really kind of like zoomed in uh, on the light curve of the particular event that we wanted to know um, the classification for. So our, the, the dimensionality of our, of our input vector uh, um, was something like, like 1,000 um, 1, time series points as opposed to all the time series points over oh, right. four years. And did you presumably like you, you knew where the event was, so you bracketed around it? Exactly. We made sure that in our input, the event um, that we were considering was was centered. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So so moving from sort of the the simple model, the logistic regression model, um, you know. So so one one parallel we we noticed with this problem um, was is is to the problem of classifying objects in images. Um, so with an image your input is actually a two-dimensional grid. Um, but what you're doing is looking for, essentially looking for local patterns within that grid, you know. Um, local groups of pixels will um, together form, you know, uh, edges and, and shapes and images. And so what we had, we had it, a one-dimensional grid or a vector, um, but we were also looking for uh, local patterns, you know, in the grid. We were looking for... Um, shapes in which the light would gradually decrease as the planet sort of passes in front of the star and then gradually increase again, sort of like a U-shape. And so with that parallel to image classification, we decided to use uh, a convolutional neural network, which uh, has been very successful for image classification in the past. 
Um, and the, the only real difference here is that uh, our inputs are one dimensional rather than uh, two or three dimensional. And so we, we used uh, 1D convolutions. Um, and, and other than that, our model is very similar to a, a sort of a, a classic convolutional neural network. And did you start with a, did you build it up uh, from kind of scratch or did you start with some, uh, a deep kind of existing deep network architecture? No, it's it's actually a pretty uh, simple uh, classic architecture that um, that I, I built up from scratch. Um, so essentially, it's just um, convolutional layers followed by max pooling layers for say ten or 12, 12 layers deep. I don't remember exactly how many layers we used. Mm-hmm. Um, followed by some fully connected layers. Um, followed by the output, which is the probability that this particular input is a plan. And did the model evolve much at all as you began working with the data or did that uh, initial model that you uh, that you kind of settled on kind of hold throughout the project? Probably the, the biggest change that we made over the project was actually uh, to feed in two separate representations of the light curve that we were looking at, of the event, I should say the event in the light curve that we were looking at. Um, so this, this one of these was a was a wide view of the event, um, and the other view was a, a very zoomed in narrow view of the event. And so what we what we learned was that uh, the model uh, sometimes needed some information that was very very far away from the uh, the event we were looking at uh, in order to make its classification decision. Um, and so that that was sort of facilitated by feeding in a very uh, a wider view of the light curve. Um, but also the model needs a, a fairly fine-grained uh, look at the, the shape of the light curve as, of the event as well. Um, so as I mentioned, we were looking for U-shaped patterns, but there are various other astronomical events that can cause, for example, a V-shaped pattern. And so what we did was we... Uh, we ultimately ended up feeding in two separate representations of the event uh, into the model. And so each representation uh, is treated by sort of individual uh, convolutional layers that are totally separate. And then they're, they're joined up towards the, the end uh, and combined together to, to give the final output prediction. Okay. And maybe tell us a little bit about like how the time has been allocated like since that six month Mark, when you started uh, applying the neural network? Right. So um, we spent a lot of time last year writing the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, some of the things that we we did for that um, was uh, come up with various ways to visualize uh, the sort of things that the model had learned, um, you know, especially as this paper was going to be uh, published in an astronomy journal rather than a machine learning journal, where people are perhaps not quite as familiar as um, as you know the machine learning community in what exactly a convolutional neural network is and and what it's doing. Um, so we used um, some techniques, for example, to visualize the the features of the input that the model had learned, um, and that was also a good sanity check for us to make sure the model was was sort of looking at the right features um, in order to make its decision. Um, 
So the the technique we applied there, which is um, which is quite a simple one, is if you block out part of the input and then feed the input into the model, and then you look at the model's prediction. If if the if the part of the input that you blocked out was really important for the model's decision, then then the decision is going to change a lot. But if you block out sort of an unimportant region of the input, then the model's decision is is not going to change, um, you know, at all perhaps. And what we found and what we found was was when we blocked out the regions that were that that you know certainly we thought. Um, indicated the, that a planet had passed in front of the star, the model's prediction changed from predicting this was a planet to predicting it wasn't a planet, which was exactly what we had hoped. It, it means that we we weren't sort of fitting to other aspects of the of the light curve. Um, we, we were really fitting. Our model was learning the features that we we expected. Um, so we spent we spent quite a bit of time really digging into the model um, and, and producing sort of visualizations and explanations of its um, of its predictions um, to to put in the paper. Awesome, and you're going to be publishing some additional information about that this week. Is that uh, do I remember correctly? You're going to be publishing some of the code that you used as well. Yeah, that's right. So uh, we published our paper this January, which outlines everything that we did. But this week, we're actually releasing uh, all of the code that we used um, to train our model, uh, which also includes actually the you know uh, all the code you need to download the data from NASA's servers um, to process the data in the exact way that we did in the paper. I mentioned like fitting away the, the low frequency variability in the star's brightness, that's included as well. Um, you know, all of this, the specifications for our, our model um, are, are included and the hyperparameters that we use to train the model. Um, and so anyone will be able to download this data, will be able to, to train a model and, um, you know, potentially they'll be able to use this to um, go searching. That's awesome. Plans. What are you hoping, uh, if anything, to see out of this? Um, well, a, a few things. I'm, I'm hoping that some people are able to um, perhaps build on the work that uh, we did. So uh, as I mentioned, our project has been focused on data from NASA's Kepler telescope, which has been in operation for eight, eight years now. But there's another telescope launching this year um, or it's at least scheduled to launch this year by NASA, which is called the, the TESS, T-E-S-S, um, satellite. And that is going to use um, sort of a very similar approach to the Kepler satellite for uh, recording this brightness data for, for many, many, many more stars even than, than Kepler did. And so uh, I'm hoping that, you know, others in the astronomy community will perhaps build on this, this, this code that I'm releasing um, and perhaps even apply it to, to other missions uh, and, and use it to, to discover planets in, in data uh, collected by the TESS satellite, awesome. for example. Awesome. Uh, well, that, that is uh, some really amazing work. I appreciate you taking the time to share it with us. Great. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me on. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Chris or any of the topics covered in this episode, 
You'll find the show notes at twimlai.com slash talk slash 117. If you have any questions for Chris, please post them there and we'll make sure to bring them to his attention. If you're new to the pod and like what you hear, or you're a veteran listener and haven't already done so, head on over to your favorite podcast app and leave us your most gracious review and rating. It helps new listeners find us, which helps us grow. Thanks in advance. And of course, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.